Good morning. My name is Jenny, if I haven't met you, or if I have and you forgot my name, which also happens. And um, we are leaning into teaching live at our site more and more often, and Eric's probably excited that the staff team is more than just him, so we get to share these opportunities, and I'm excited to, to share with you what I have been sitting on. Um, the last couple of times I have taught, I've literally taught twice. So third time the charm, we'll find out. You can let me know at the end. The first time was a predetermined passage, so that was interesting. I learned a lot, I did my best. And the second time was in August, sharing with you all about some of the history and highlights and learnings of being the Meeting House Ottawa. And so that felt good because as somebody without a seminary degree background, I felt more equipped to speak to the history of a community that I've been a part of for 14 years. Um, and so this is the first time that I was given just kind of free, what do you feel the Spirit saying to you? What do you feel you'd like to share? And so, since I was running through this with my husband in the car, I'm noticing page one is not at the beginning, but now it is. Um, I'm going to share with you a little bit about how I have learned to study the scripture more recently. I have been encouraged to study the Bible my whole life because I grew up in a Christian, Jesus-centered family, not Anabaptist, but not that far removed, and it's been an ongoing, I can't remember a time where I didn't know about the Bible, and so my whole memory is filled with this understanding that you should read the Bible, and that can be a heavy statement, um, because sometimes that feels very empowering and encouraging, but sometimes, a lot of my younger histories, it feels like something you should feel encouraged by, but it might also feel dry, or um, hard to understand, or depending on your translation, written in an unfamiliar tone. So I, um, in preparing for this, of course, did a bunch of reading and sitting and thinking and praying. But one of the things I did was I listened to a podcast, which is kind of a big deal because I could probably list on both hands the number of podcasts I've actually listened to. I know they're amazing. Many people recommend them wildly, and I'm just slow on the podcast train. But I listened to one this week because it was called Scripture Untangled, and because my youth pastor, who's now a senior pastor, um, was speaking about Bible study. And he summed up two very important questions to always ask when you're reading Scripture, which gave language to what has been murmuring in me for the past couple of years. The first one is, what does it mean? And this speaks to what's the context historically? Who wrote it? Why did they write it? Who were they writing it to? What were the cultural implications? All of that kind of head knowledge that I think our church, the Meeting House, has had a very strong history of leaning into deeply. And for some of us, that's been very refreshing because I remember in my early 20s thinking, I have learned so little about Bible time facts, but I have learned so many verses that I could just memorize and spout, but I don't really understand their context. And I remember sort of feeling like, hey, this is an interesting more accurately confusing experience of feeling like I know a lot of words, but I don't know where they all come from. Um, and God moves through that anyways. And I have always felt strongly that the Bible speaks clearly to how much God loves us and how much he wants us to love him. Um, but one of the things that I have found so empowering in my um, years at the Meeting House is learning a lot about the Bible sort of academically, being able to analyze it, ask questions, compare, have group discussion. So I feel like if you've been a part of the Meeting House, which you literally are because you're sitting here right now, um, you are familiar with this. 
way of studying the Bible. The second question that was presented on this podcast is, what is Jesus saying to me through his spirit today? And this question um, gave words to what I have been learning a lot about in the past couple of years. And it's a riskier question because it's not something that you can verify through a theologian's work. It's what is Jesus saying to me? What do I feel murmuring in my heart through his spirit? What is the Holy Spirit adding to my, um, my consciousness or my gut feeling or my kind of desires or leanings or things I feel like I should hold back in? It could be anything. What is the Holy Spirit saying? And today, not yesterday, not tomorrow, today. And so this is something that by nature of the question changes, which also makes it challenging because it's rarely the same. You might have patterns as you ask yourself this question over and over with different scriptures. So all that to say, those are the questions that I kept asking when I was reading through Romans 14 many, many times over the past few weeks. But the question that I leaned into more was the second one, because I feel like that is what I have to offer. I don't have a seminary background. I did have a phone call with Jimmy Rushton, who is self-proclaimed super Bible nerdy, and he is so steeped in information about the what does this mean, the history and context and who wrote it, and he gave me a lot of information and I found it very interesting. And mostly what I was trying to do in that conversation was a litmus test that the things that I felt the Spirit was saying to me to share we're not blasphemy. So here's, here's hoping. Neither question should be totally isolated. They're very important together. Um, but here we are. This is what I have to offer. I didn't prepare slides, so if you are listening to this later, you are missing nothing. This whole experience is acoustic. But I will start with reading the entirety of Romans 14. And if you'd like to follow along I think there are Bibles on the shelves at the back. I think I can see them if you'd like that. If you'd like to follow on your phone, that's, of course, always an option. But I'm going to read through a little bit slowly to just give the passage a chance to settle in to our ears. Romans 14. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything. But another, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, 
we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore, this might be the last therefore, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. Nothing like a passage that ends with the word sin. So there's that. Um, as I was talking to Jimmy about the context here and skimming through some of the passages before and after in the rest of Romans, I was thinking about why is Paul writing this? Why is he writing this at this time? And Jesus following is new. He's writing to like first generation Christians, first time um, people that were not just first generation, that's maybe inaccurate, people who are like first time Christians who have come from a different faith background, Jewish, and some of them Gentile. And they are in a space that's new and uncomfortable. We hear all the time, and we're lucky to hear all the time, um, all of the old laws are abolished, the new law is to love God, love others. All of the law can be summed up in that. Jesus tells us that, the other writings of the New Testament tell us that, it comes up a lot. I feel like as a long-time meeting houser, I've heard that a lot. And as I was thinking about the people receiving this letter from Paul, I analogy popped into my head. Imperfect, it's an analogy. Um, but it was, how would I feel if traffic rules, most of us, all of us, are either a pedestrian, cyclist, or driver of some vehicle, maybe multiple if you have a motorcycle like Brian, 
not at the same time. I'm sure he just chooses one at a time. Um, but imagine, like all the traffic rules are pretty black and white. You know where to be, you know when to turn. Do you follow them? Maybe. But you know what they are, and you know when you're not following them. And you know when somebody else is not following them. That is clear. So what, amen. That's what the horn is for. Can I get another amen? Just kidding. Um, but imagine some traffic savior comes along that has been prophesied about for a very long time and says, I read everybody, new rule, no rules, love other cars as you love your own car. How would you feel driving on the road, walking on the sidewalk, uncomfortable? Because you feel like that's a nice idea, but that takes a lot of tiny decision making. Without, like watching out, you have to watch out for other cars a lot more because you don't necessarily know what they're going to do because you're hoping they're going to love your car as you're trying to love their car. But anyway, I was thinking about that and appreciating traffic rules as I thought about that. And in that, traditions and patterns might emerge. People might naturally stick to the same side of the road. Wouldn't that be helpful? And it might look like an old rule, but it would still be based in this idea of working together to love others. And so I was thinking about that. I was thinking about judgment. Um, the passage I read has a lot of lines saying, do not judge or do not treat with contempt. And I was thinking about how in a religion where God gave so many specifics and rules pre-Jesus, how easy it would be to judge because it's clear when somebody's breaking the rule. It's very black and white. It's very detailed. If you want to read Leviticus, you can see a lot of details about that. Um, and so judging was easier, but even in that Old Testament context, we're still not encouraged to judge. We're encouraged to leave that to God. That is not our place. So how much more so in a New Testament, Jesus' time to leave that judgment aside because it's not ours to hold and it's even harder to judge because all of that personal discernment of loving others and letting all your actions stem from them are really what it's coming to. As I thought about some themes in this passage, um, two words came to mind that feel vaguely synonymous but perhaps worth sharing each on their own. The first is discernment. This whole passage has nods to discernment and empowering God gives us space to use our minds, to use our hearts, to make space for the Holy Spirit. And the other word was freedom. The reason we can discern is because he's given us this freedom. But we're not just given freedom for ourselves. We're given freedom to hold. I mean, should I quote Superman here? With great power comes great responsibility. Yes, I'm getting at least one nod. Spider-Man? Is it Spider-Man? Superman? I googled this and it turns out it goes all the way back to Voltaire and even all the way back to Jesus. So, you know, just saying. Marvel Comics, new home church coming soon. Um, all that to say, we have all this freedom, but we're asked to use it with discernment and not just discernment for ourselves, but discernment for others. That's the root. And that's the beauty and also the complication. So to pop through a couple of verses in specifics. Verse 1 talks about without quarreling over disputable matters. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling, arguing, debating, debatably, over disputable matters. And as soon as I read that line, I just thought, there are disputable matters. They exist. They are allowed to exist right from the get-go. And I mean, I'm sure if I said, what feel like disputable matters to you? We would all have a long laundry list of things that do not align perfectly with the person beside us, with the person on the other side of a Facebook conversation, etc. 
Um, and to me, that word disputable highlights that God is giving us discernment. What a gift and what a responsibility. Verse 3, God accepts them all. All of the different offerings, whether somebody is eating meat, abstaining, only eating vegetables, God accepts them all. So no matter what's happening with these disputable matters, God is so gracious and willing to take in what we have to offer as we have that to offer. Um, verse three, or sorry, verse six emphasizes that again. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. If somebody's eating meat, they do so to the Lord. Whoever abstains does so to the Lord. There's this common thread of the Lord is meeting us where we're at and graciously accepting those things. And that gave me a lot of um, the ability to recognize that I can also be gentle to myself. I can be gentle for others as I discern. I'm trying not to hear my sweet little daughter talking about her gray bunny, but thanks, Mark, <laughs> holding down the fort. Um, this, this thread of does so to the Lord and the Lord accepts them all. If, I feel like if I can take nothing else from this passage, God receives what we have to offer and looks for the best in us. And how relieving that is, um, but also how good of an example that is for us to treat others the same way. The verse 10 talks about why do you judge, why do you treat others with contempt? And the first nine verses are just do this, don't do that, God does this, God accepts that. And this is the first kind of question to the readers, why? And that stood out to me as a chance to pause and personally reflect on why do I judge or treat others with contempt? Um, I was at a, I don't know what to call it, workshop, discussion, Christianish group gathering with somebody at the front with a mic that wasn't formally a sermon. Maybe this is parallel. Um, and they were talking about many things, but the one that stood out and has continued to form me for the past four or five years since I first heard it was this idea of scapegoats. I think when I hear don't judge, I think got it, check, I know it. I probably still do it, but it's kind of one of those, I've heard it so many times, it loses some of its potency. So this idea presented with the title of scapegoating helped me to reframe it and kind of reassess in my own life. And the short form of it was, who or what groups of people do you naturally feel better than? Do you look down on? Do you use as like the classic, those people, discreditable example? Um, I can say this because I'm now married to somebody who likes this music, but I used to feel this way about country music. Easily dismissible, easy to look down on, and now I enjoy it, so that's a good serving of humble pie. Modern country, honky-tonk, I'm still, you know, there's, there's room to grow, there's always room to grow. But it's a, it's a light example to pinpoint um, that we all have, I think, insensitivity to how quickly we dismiss a certain group. And that might be my upbringing. I have parents that did not go to post, what's it called? They didn't go to university. They didn't do any post-secondary education. And so they really wanted that for me and my siblings. They wanted to say, this is a helpful choice. This is a good choice. Go to university. And so we did. Most of us, my, anyway, everyone had their own journey. But it was highlighted and it was clear that university was important and better than non-university, which was a challenge because then for a while I had this lens that non-university people were somehow less than, which is kind of insane because... It's not true, um, but this was this lens that I was given, meant with love, and meant to lift me up, 
but that somehow along the way also added to a scapegoating. And, and so I have untangled that, and I recognize that my parents don't. If you say, do you look down on people that didn't go to university, they would say no. But sometimes good intentions can turn into an accidental scapegoating. So when I read this passage about do not judge, especially about things that you feel very strongly about personally, that's a reminder to me, especially with verse 10 on the questions, why do you judge or why do you treat with contempt? Is it because you need to feel better than, can you let go of your own identity and just let somebody else be? Is it because you want to feel right? Is it because you want to feel control over certainty of something? There's so many different reasons for that, and so I just took away that this is, verse 10 is an invitation to pause and to consider. The next question that I have for us is, do you identify more with feeling judged or with judging outwardly? The quote-unquote right, right answer is probably both. Um, but I think different circumstances, you might land in different camps. And then there's always the fun irony of when feeling judged, are you judging the judger? And are we just on this deep spiral of judge, 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 judge? Because I think we all know those feelings. And when I, I looked at a few different commentaries, and one commentary summed up this entire chapter in two halves, each with a single line. And the whole first half was summarized as don't judge each other in doubtful things. And I thought, crisp, clear, helpful. So I offer that to you. And the second half is don't stumble each other in doubtful things. As simple as that. As I was, again, reading this many times over the past few weeks, it struck me that don't judge each other Paul could have ended his writing there. He could have just told people what to do and left it. Instead, he asks them a question and invites them to consider why they may be judging. And then he goes even further and gives some thought around what to do instead of judging, not just for personal improvement, not just for honoring God, but for loving others. I think one of the most tangible ways we can show God that we love him is by loving each other which is challenging because that's often a lot harder than just loving God directly by yourself with your favorite Christian music or Bible verse or beautiful sunset, etc. which is good, but we're certainly called not to live in isolation but in community. So some things that stood out to me from the second half about don't stumble each other is um, verse 13 says, Instead, don't pass judgment on each other. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of another. And I thought, hmm, make up your mind. What does that mean? Usually in the moment you're reacting. And this suggested to me that Paul is encouraging us to decide in advance when I feel judgmental, when I feel like I'm better than somebody, or they'll figure it out eventually and then join me in this right way of thinking or being or deciding. Decide in advance that when you feel that swirl coming up, to put it aside and to not let it be a stumbling block for somebody else. And I thought that's very wise, because in my experience, in the moment is not my best time for discernment. In advance is my best time for discernment, and with some good prayer and Holy Spirit movement, those in advancenesses happen in the moment, especially with practice and 
gracious friends and family and a husband, etc. Um, verse 15, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat or do, you're no longer acting in love. Usually, I judge my own actions by my motivations, which I know, because they're mine. Nobody else can prove them. They might see glimmers of them, but nobody else can know for sure. Me and God know for sure. This verse challenges that being the final measurement because it suggests that even if you're doing the thing that you feel is best, if somebody else in your community is distressed, it's not loving. Um, I was sharing this with my husband, and he was giving some thoughtful feedback, and he said this line that I wrote down verbatim. I said, please stop talking. I need to write this down exactly before I forget. Um, he said, a measure of your conviction for the world is how strongly you stand up for it and how opposite it is to instead of strongly standing up for your conviction and imposing it on another party or another person to say this conviction is distressing my brother or sister, so I will rein it in and choose another setting or another time and give space to this person's distress because that is more important than my conviction. And that's not what probably the world will will invite or recognize, but that's what Jesus asks us to do. Verse 20 talks about all food being clean. Paul says, all food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. In verse 14, he says, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. And I found it interesting that he is so sure and even in his own certainty, doesn't impose. This whole passage gives room for people to fully honor God by not eating certain foods that they feel are unclean. And I felt this patience. Paul is being patient. He's giving information. He's encouraging discernment. And he's also being certain in his own conviction and bold by telling it to people twice in 23 verses but not rushing them to be the same as him, not rushing them to get on the same bandwagon and have the same convictions. And back to verse 3 where it talks about God accepting all of the different kinds of offerings. How patient is God to not rush us to figure out our convictions or our disputable matters? I think we all understand that there are core things. Jesus loves us. He died for us to be able to connect with God, that we need to love God, love others. But there are so many other decisions in faith and sort of, I mean, we all know that there are a bajillion denominations and that's partially because there are disputable matters and it's helpful sometimes to gather with people that have aligned in some way. That's why we are here. We really value simplicity, being Jesus-centered, peace, generosity, community, mission, other things on our BIC and Meeting House documents. Uh, but all that to say... God is gracious with what we have to offer. Paul is gracious with the people that he's writing to in this passage. And therefore, we can and should be gracious to those around us who are not on the same page as us. Verse 22 says, whatever you believe about these things, that line felt like another clue on the discernment train. Whatever you believe, not if you believe the right thing, if you believe the wrong thing, whatever you believe about these things, there's 
there's an air of empowering our own thinking and interpreting and ideally community conversation around these things. And then he goes on to say, keep between yourself and God. Most of this, this is, this is a letter written to a community. It's not a letter written to one person. But the singular use of yourself here stood out to me, partially because I love language. So I thought, huh, that's funny. And partially because it doesn't say not between yourselves and God. And the implication of that, I picture somebody wrestling with something, having a conviction or feeling strongly, bringing it to God as their main conversation about it. And having, if you are doing that, then God is your main input source. If you're having your conversations with anybody, everybody, then you're getting a lot of different input. But if you ask God first, ask for the Holy Spirit to prompt you, I think there is a lot of beauty and safety in choosing to let God be the main influencer in your thoughts and in your convictions. Later in that last couple of verses, um, verse 23 says, um, everything that comes, that does not come from faith is sin. Which sometimes feels heavy. It feels very absolute. After all of this in-betweensy discernment, disputable matters, everything that does not come from faith is sin. It feels like sober thought. This is important. This matters. And how I read that is that if you don't have faith, wait. Wait for faith. Wait in faith. Ask God for faith. And don't dismiss discernment. Don't dismiss that that really matters. I want to read the last two verses in the message version because it sort of held some of these ideas I found it helpful, the wording. Um, Cultivate your own relationship with God, but don't, do not impose it on others. You're fortunate if your behavior and your belief are coherent. But if you're not sure, if you notice that you are acting in ways inconsistent with what you believe, some days trying to impose your opinion on others, other days just trying to please them, then you know that you're out of line if the way you live isn't consistent with what you believe, then it's wrong. So from that, transitioning to spiritual practices, this passage has a whole bunch of things people do motivated in making space to honor God. Eating meat, not eating meat, drinking wine, not drinking wine. Um, seeing days as sacred, seeing every day as equal. And spiritual practices is, I am taking a program right now called Spiritual Formation. So I'm, I'm like thinking about this a lot. I take one course a semester and I'm in my fourth course. And um, one of the courses I took was about specifically spiritual practices and how they help form people. And what I found very interesting is that there's no broad definition for spiritual practice. Every theologian Every, every person that writes on the topic seems to have their own definition. And so instead of reading you a whole bunch of them, which we did in one class, um, the common thread is that they all make space for the Holy Spirit to form us, for us connecting to God, for us connecting to who God made us to be, and for us 
to be able to be better for others. It's never just ending at ourselves. This whole passage speaks to for others, for others, for others. Love God for others, through others. But I do want to give a little bit of practical information about spiritual practices and some exciting discoveries that I have found along the way. So three factors that um, a writer named Casper Turk, K-U-I-L-E, I do not know how to say that Dutch name, um, who had a very Jesus-y upbringing, but I think does not follow in his footsteps now, but lives in a space of teaching about spirituality, which is very interesting, talks about intention, attention, and repetition. So intention is something is a practice, or a soulful practice, as he calls them, or a spiritual practice, as we might call them, because you are intentional. You do it on purpose, and you know what it is and why you're doing it. You need to give attention to it, and that means that when you are participating in that spiritual practice, you're present. You're not multitasking. You're deliberate. And repetition means you do it more than once. Um, We're very cyclical beings. We don't eat once, boom, not hungry for the rest of life. We don't sleep once, boom, not tired for the rest of life, although that would be amazing. Uh, We have this ongoing regular cyclical rhythm, the cycles of of nature, everything just keeps coming back and starting again and coming back and starting again. And I think God is trying to tell us very subtly and very overtly, depending on how, how it's showing up in your life, is that the ongoing is critical. We're designed to, to um, need more than once. And sometimes that means it's a dry experience and it's not all flourishing and beautiful. And sometimes that means that it is rich and lush. And depending on where you are, one of the beautiful things about being in community is that we're probably not all exactly the same at the exact same time. So there are seasons that I have felt very fallow is a word that my spiritual director and I identified a couple of winters ago, so that was seasonally appropriate. Um, but I was surrounded by people that were feeling vibrant and, and experiencing Jesus in very tangible ways, even though I was feeling very, like things were just paused. It wasn't clear. Um, taking a look at my notes so I don't get too lost. Also a look at the clock so I don't get too lost. Where I want to land, there's more that I would love to say, but I will, I know Kid Max will run out eventually and youth programming too. What I want to say is spiritual practices can be anything. That's one of the, my favorite things that I have learned in the past couple of years. And as I've thought a lot about what is secular, what is spiritual. I have learned and experienced that anything can be spiritual. God is sovereign over every single thing. And so as you consider spiritual practices, and I'll invite you to go through a little bit of a thinking exercise in a moment, I would encourage you to not limit yourself to what your upbringing has said is spiritual. This, again, is a bit risky and involves discernment, and this is a good space to with trusted community and other Jesus followers say, is this bonkers or is this plausible? Um, One example I will give is, and I told in the volunteer meeting, I said I was going to share a toilet story to which the youth and kids look very disappointed about not being able to hear about it. So I said, ask your parents after the service. So in a spirit of TMI, too much information, here is a spiritual practice that I developed by accident, but was very blessed by after Naomi was born. 
when she was three months old, two years ago, it was Christmas season beginning. And I thought, okay, we're in the thick of COVID. I have a newborn. I'm tired. Um, if you know anything about childbearing, first of all, giving birth, it's a challenge. Naomi was a giant baby, so I had some healing to do. I'll say the word stitches, etc. Also, when you're feeding a new person, your whole body slows down to absorb as much nutrient as it can to offer that to the baby through breastfeeding, if that's the choice you're making. And so, for the first time in my life, my digestive system was sluggish, which meant my morning commute to the bathroom and my time there took a lot longer than it ever has in my entire life. And I had to gently sit there and wait and not rush my body because I needed to be gentle to what was healing and figuring itself out. Hemorrhoids are apparently very common in this part of a person's life. And so I was just trying to be gentle, take my time. I would say to Mark, okay, Mark, I'm heading to the bathroom, wink, wink, keep an eye out for Naomi, an ear out for Naomi, because I am not available for 20 minutes to half an hour. Then, at the same time, on Instagram, Scott Erickson, who's an artist and faithful thinker, Jesus-centered, that I really admire, was putting out a book called Honest Advent with images and a few pages of writing to think through every day. So I ordered it, and by nature of how my body was and the season at the time, um, that time in the morning in the bathroom was my time to read this book because it was the one time of day that I could absolutely certainly be alone for more than five minutes guaranteed. Mark would take care of whatever Naomi needed, whatever came up, and I could just be quietly with myself, my body, and God. And so I did for all of that Advent season, sit there and read this book and spend that time and beautifully, this book is also very honest about bodily functions and doesn't shy away from um, some of the human details of Jesus' life, his coming to earth, the Christmas season. And so that was a really potent spiritual practice experience for me that was time sensitive. Now, I don't have that much time in the bathroom because, yay, I'm regular. <laughs> Things you don't expect to say during a message, but now y'all know. You can praise the Lord for me. Um, but I say that story to encourage you to not dismiss something in your life because it seems so far away from somber spirituality or perhaps things that are assumed to be sacred. And there are very, very many beautiful traditional things that are sacred. I also went through a strong season, related, unrelated to the bathroom, of lighting candles. I would light... <laughs> Marilyn's laughing at the back. We all know, but... I, I had a friend who, we were talking about mental health in wintertime, and November can be very bleak. Oh, that's now. Now can be very bleak. And so I made a practice of every day, at some point in my day, lighting a candle and just remembering what, what the reason for my light was. Jesus, Jesus is there. Jesus is light. Whether it's small and persistent or whatever candle I had at the moment, some of them were big, some of them were table. Um, there's so much there. There's so many ways that you can spend time welcoming the Holy Spirit into your life to help you discern, to help you take a next step, to just be present and refresh. And so I will highlight two things and then a couple of closing announcements. But this book I wanted to show you, it's called, I guess there is one visual component to this message, Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. 
by Adele Albert Calhoun. It looks like a textbook, and it pretty much is, but it is a treasure trove of empowering information. There are, I had to buy this for one of my courses, and I'm so grateful. Everybody ask the library to stock it, and then we can all just borrow it all the time. Um, but if you want to take a look at it, come, come and find me after. There are 75 spiritual practices in here, sometimes called disciplines, sometimes called rhythms, sometimes called delights, desires. And when I first read that table of contents, my heart just lit up. I felt like, look at all the variety. God is so creative. He's not worried about us meeting him in these very specific boxes that just by chance are the ones that we were first shown. And as some of my conversations with my spiritual director and my own experiences that I have perhaps too openly shared with you, God is also not bound to the 75 that this person identifies. There are so many. There are so many ways to make space for God in your life. And so I will conclude by asking you to close your eyes if you'd like and think about some questions that I'd like to guide you through to help you discern if there's a spiritual practice that God has waiting for you to step into. I would like you to think about a part of your life. It could, whatever comes to mind first. The Holy Spirit, I have learned through my courses, the Holy Spirit, maybe I'm more charismatic than I thought, is so powerful and so willing to reach us. And if we miss it, we'll just keep trying again and trying again and trying again. So I wouldn't discredit whatever first comes to mind. That's fine. Or if there's a quiet nudging of something that just keeps coming up in your life that you just haven't had a moment to consider, think about that one thing right now. And think about how that feels. How would you describe it? Is it something that's budding and flourishing and just needs a little bit of protection and care? Is it something that is perhaps withering away and there's a discomfort in how to know when to end or close? Is it, as I described for myself, something that just feels fallow? There's no clear next step and it's hard to know what to do next. Or perhaps it's something that is just exploding and you're just not sure, like, how much do I hold this in? How much do I let go? Do I pass off? Do I invite somebody else into it? And in all of that, what is the Holy Spirit placing in you as a desire? Are you looking for restoration? Are you looking for peace? Are you looking for um, questions to be answered? Are you looking for companionship? Could be anything. And then I would ask you to, and I pray that the Holy Spirit pops into your head a moment in your day or your week or your month that could be a space for a spiritual practice, a space for inviting the Holy Spirit regularly into that topic, into your life, to make space for discernment in that. So intention, attention, and repetition. Intention, what could that be and why? And I would also add with who, because we have been brought up, I have been brought up to treat spiritual practices as very individual activities, but um, Calhoun's book lists dozens of group spiritual activities, worship, of course, but conversation, hospitality, there are so many. And so maybe your spiritual practice will not be something that's alone. And I think in a season where we have all felt extra lonely for a very long time, this might be a good season to invite somebody else into that spiritual practice. Attention. How will you protect the time and space to be deliberate? 
It could be something very short. It could be something that you have the space to do for an hour. For me, that seems very long in this season of life, but very luxurious. And then repetition. How regularly would you like to do this spiritual practice? And maybe for how long? Maybe you want to do something every day for a week. Maybe you feel a desire to do something once a month for a year or a few times a week. Whatever it is, I would encourage you to, again, just listen to those internal nudges. Don't discredit them as, as flippant, but as the Holy Spirit trying to communicate with you. And then the last thing I would say is share that with somebody else. The most consistent that I have ever been is because I've shared with somebody else. I know some people... I'm going to shout out Lacey, who are very naturally disciplined and do a beautiful job of modeling for me what it's like to be steadfast. She'll shake her head because she's humble, but Lacey, you have taught me so much just by being yourself. Um, But when I've told other people what what I want to do, what I'm hoping to do, that's when I follow through the best. And so if you're like me, you are not alone, and I recommend telling a friend or somebody that will gently say, how's that going, without the shame of, oh, I forgot but just I'm asking because I care. So in conclusion, most of you have opened drives by now. Welcome back if you haven't. Um, what I feel so excited about is that the Holy Spirit moves, that the Bible is more than just a text to figure out, but something that is alive and breathing and moving with us as we go. And there is, as I said before, more risk in that, more discomfort in that new freedom and discernment, but also so much beauty. And our Anabaptist tradition of community hermeneutic and discerning together, not just alone, is such an important ingredient in that process. And so I, I, these are the things that, that found their way onto my notes and that I wanted to share with you. And What I think is most important about any of this is that you talk about it with other people. Please come and tell me what I have missed, what I could expand on, what else is prompted for you. And I think that ongoing dialogue is part of why I'm so excited to celebrate our birthday, our anniversary, our meeting house anniversary this week. So I will, you know when people say, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do that, I always think, just do the thing. Anyway, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm hypocriting. I'm saying, I will pray, and then I'm going to pray. So I'll just keep learning as I go. But let's, let's pray for a moment, and then I'll share some more announcements. Lord Jesus, you are gracious. What comes through so clear to me today, this week, in the Romans 14 text, is that you are kind and like a parent receiving a gift from a child that may or may not actually suit the parent. You gratefully receive anything that we offer with our hearts with our hearts moving toward you. And we pray that we would we would think thoughtfully about what we're offering, that we would follow the Holy Spirit in what we're offering. And we pray for the ability to step outside of ourselves and gently remind each other to step outside of ourselves to see how what we're doing impacts each other. And that we would best be able to love you by loving the image of you in each other and by being kind and gratefully receiving from each other in that. I thank you for the rich history of our church here. 14 years of so many different things, different places, different styles, different leaders, 
different members, but one consistent you. And we are grateful for that, and we hold loosely our future, but we know that you will be the consistent factor. And so we pray for graciousness as we try to converse over disputable matters as we go forward and figure out each season as it comes, what you have next for us. All these things in your beautiful name. Amen. I had more jokes planned that I didn't say, and I'm kind of bummed about that, but oh well. Oh well. Next time, yeah. They'll just be jokes out of context about a different message. That'll be so fun. Um, a couple of announcements. Wednesday was our 14th birthday, November 9. So happy birthday to us. And to celebrate, we decided to jazz up our coffee and tea service this afternoon. We're having a potluck next week. Um, the girls announced that. But next week, the whole service is a potluck, starting at 3. So kind of a mid-afternoon potluck. But bring your favorite thing. We're going to have a big buffet table set up and tables and chairs set up in here. So we thought, let's not, like, we've got food covered for next week. But today, we've got chocolate sprinkles, whipped cream, eggnog, because I was the one that went to the grocery store, and that's very good in coffee, hot chocolate, other things that I don't remember. So that is why the coffee is exciting today. We thought carefully about how to word special coffee, and Eric wisely thought all ages special coffee, because we didn't bring the kind of special that you might find, you know, after dinner. Oh, good, the kids are back. I want us to sing happy birthday all together. So I want to say that. And then the other thing I want to share is Riverside Home Church had their first week last week, but it was basically a giant pizza party, which was amazing. But they are meeting again today after the service. So if you'd like to join them, they have got dinner. They have made shepherd's pie, a vegan version and a non-vegan version, and salad. And so if you'd like to stick around, you can find Ken or Nicole, and they will help you know where to be. But hot tip, it's room six. So with that, kids, it's our 14th birthday as a site, and so adults and kids, let's sing happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to the Meeting House Ottawa. Happy birthday to you. Woohoo! For those coming in, it's our 14th birthday last Wednesday, so we sang. Somehow we sounded very beautiful when we sang to Carlo last week. Maybe we were very inspired. Um, but with that, I will say thank you for being here. Go in peace and enjoy all ages special coffee.